Why do so many bad people prosper? Why doesn't God punish them? So goes the question that many would have asked over time, and the one that Habakkuk asks God. Habakkuk was a prophet writing during the last days of Judah before its fall to Babylon in 586 BC. So, Habakkuk was concerned with social justice, or indeed the lack of it within society. And in chapter 1 of his book, he pleads with God to explain why nothing seems to be happening to sort it out. In chapter 1, verse 3, Habakkuk says, Wherever I look, I see destruction and violence. I'm surrounded by people who love to argue and fight. How long, O Lord, must I call for help? And God's first reply really surprises Habakkuk. God says that the Babylonians, who Habakkuk perceives to be worse than the people of Judah, will punish them. This is like the really bad people coming to punish the quite bad people. And I imagine this was not really what Habakkuk was thinking of. I imagine he was hoping for some holy, good, wholesome intervention. The kind of James Bond intervention when the really good guys come and sort out the really bad guys. So Habakkuk boldly challenges God again. says, God, this wasn't quite what I was thinking of. And he says to God, In um, chapter 1, verse 15, he says, Should you be silent when the wicked people destroy others who are more righteous than they? How long will you let them get away with it? And in chapter 2, God replies again. I'd like us just to read it together. It's going to be on the screen because I've taken it from the New Living Translation, which is slightly different to the Bibles in front of you. So um, I'm just going to read it um, and you can follow it here. So this is the Lord talking to Habakkuk. Write my answer plainly on tablets so that a runner can carry the correct message to others. This vision is for a future time. It describes the end and it will be fulfilled. If it seems slow in coming, wait patiently for it will surely take place. It will not be delayed. Look at the proud. They trust in themselves and their lives are crooked. But the righteous will live by their faithfulness to God. Wealth is treacherous and the arrogance are never at rest. They open their mouths as wide as the grave, and like death, they are never satisfied. In their greed, they have gathered up many nations and swallowed many peoples. But soon their captors will taunt them. They will mock them, saying, What sorrow awaits you, thieves? Now you will get what you deserve. You've become rich by extortion, but how much longer can this go on? Suddenly your debtors will take action. They will turn on you and take all you have while you stand trembling and helpless. Because you have plundered many nations, now all the survivors will plunder you. You committed murder throughout the countryside and filled the towns with violence. What sorrow awaits you who build big houses with money gained dishonestly? You believe your wealth will buy security, putting your family's nest beyond the reach of danger. But by the murders you committed, you have shamed your name and forfeited your lives. The very stones in the walls cry out against you, and the beams in the ceilings echo the complaint. What sorrow awaits you who build cities with money gained through murder and corruption? Has not the Lord of Heaven's armies promised that the wealth of nations will turn to ashes? They work so hard, but all in vain. For as the waters fill the sea, the earth will be filled with an awareness of the glory of the Lord. What sorrow awaits you who make your neighbors drunk? You force your cup on them so that you can gloat over their shameful nakedness. But soon it will be your turn to be disgraced. Come, 
drink and be exposed. Drink from the cup of the Lord's judgment and all your glory will be turned to shame. You cut down the forest of Lebanon, now you will be cut down. You destroyed the wild animals, so now their terror will be yours. You committed murder throughout the countryside and filled the towns with violence. What good is an idol carved by man or a cast image that deceives you? How foolish to trust in your own creation, a God that can't even talk. What sorrow awaits you who say to wooden idols, wake up and save us to speechless stone images. You say, rise up and teach us. Can an idol tell you what to do? They may be overlaid with gold and silver, but they are lifeless inside. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Wow. You can see that God isn't very impressed with the Babylonians or with the people of Judah. And as I've reflected on this this week, I'd just like to share with you a couple of things that I've been thinking about. Firstly, if you think Habakkuk is angry with injustice, or you think that you sometimes get angry at injustice, as you can see from the reading, God is angrier. Indeed, through the prophecy, God expresses this mixture of real rage and brokenheartedness for both the Babylonians and the people of Judah. Going through the passage, God speaks out against arrogance, greed, extortion, murder, violence, corruption, drunkenness idol worship. All these things grieve God. Yet God says to Habakkuk in verse 3 that it will not always be like this. It says, this vision is for a future time. If it seems slow in coming, wait patiently for it will surely take place. It will not be delayed. The message is really clear. Be patient, God says. I am a God of justice, but it might not happen exactly when you want it to happen. Perhaps this, like many of the Old Testament prophecies, is an allusion to the birth of Christ and the redemption of the world. In terms of us, there'll be times when we want to see bad people punished, but we have to trust this to God's timing. It's not really our place to question when justice might arrive. As an extension of this, I think it's really important to recognize that as well as the timing of justice... The process of dishing out judgment is God's, not ours. Habakkuk whinges a lot about how bad the Babylonians are. Back in chapter 1, he says to God, Why are you silent when wicked people destroy ours? Will you let them get away with this forever? Similarly, how tempting is it for us to pass judgment on people who we think are corrupt and to say how wrong they are? The word corrupt comes from the Latin word corruptus, and the co is just the preface, so the important bit of the word is ruptus. And ruptus, corruptus, actually means to break, okay, from like the word rupture, something is broken. So corruption is therefore when the correct method or way of doing something breaks down. You, like me, will have seen this week the demise of the news of the world amongst allegations of phone hacking and all sorts of corruption between politicians and the media and the police. How many of us, either verbally or mentally, pointed the finger without really knowing the facts? We like to judge. We like to feel that those that deserve to be punished will, will be. 
They're so corrupt. We mutter under our breath. But let's just look at it another way. Perhaps all of us, however indirect, have a hand to play in causing corruption. Maybe all of us sometimes allow the correct process or method of something that's happening to become broken. The correct situation throughout the world should be that everybody has enough to eat and to drink. There is more than enough to go round. Yet you, like me, would have seen the horrific scenes this week from East Africa. In the Latin sense of the word, this is corruptus, corruption. The correct process has broken down. And whilst it feels better to try to distance ourselves from this, lots of the trade that we engage with every day, in my view, is corruptus. The West tends to dictate terms. And one of the explanations why there's not enough food to go around is because we don't make it a priority to make sure that the correct process is followed. Trade is often very unfair, but we're just lucky enough to be the winners not the losers. Uncomfortable though it is to think about this, deep down I know that nearly every time I buy something, the person who grew it or made it is a lot less well off than me and in many cases will be on the breadline. It's indirect and it doesn't feel as blatant as the news of the world type of corruption, but unethical trade is still a process that is broken, a corruption. And I'd argue that most of us would have to admit our part in it. Jesus said, don't point out the splinter in your friend's eye when you have a plank in your own. Jesus said, when they were about to stone the adulterous woman, let the person who has not sinned throw the first stone. And I really believe that as Christians, we have to stand up against this blame culture that often pervades our society. I think that we can show that our faith makes us different by admitting that we all have a part to play in causing corruptness or brokenness in our world. We need to be able to admit that we could always live purer, holier, more just lives. How does this link to Habakkuk? Well... We need to leave the judging of those that we perceive to be corrupt to God. Habakkuk has shown that God is the one who will make all things right, not us. I don't really think that God appreciated Habakkuk's response of, well, the Babylonians are worse than us, why don't you sort them out first? And I doubt that God really appreciates it when I bite into my Yorkie and think, well... It's the supermarket's fault, not mine, that the person that grew the cocoa beans isn't really getting paid a fair wage. Let's take responsibility for our own actions and let God be the judge of others. The second thing I've been thinking about this week lies right at the very end of the passage. Habakkuk is told that the key to bringing justice in the world is to seek intimacy with God. In verse 18 and 19 of the chapter, idol worship is criticized. It says, What good is an idol carved by man or a cast image that deceives you? How foolish to trust in your own creation, a God that can't even talk. 
What sorrow awaits you who say to wooden idols, wake up and save us to speechless stone images. You say, rise up and teach us. And following this in verse 20, it says, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. For me, this suggests that amidst all the mess that we might sense around us, we need to seek God in all his holiness. Last Wednesday, I was invited by my head teacher to go and have dinner at the House of Lords. And um, you don't go into teaching thinking that you're going to get a lot of posh nights out. So I recognize this might be the only one of my whole career. (laughs) So um, as a result, I'd bought myself a new dress and savored every moment of the evening. And for somebody that teaches history, the House of Lords is like all your favorite things all at once. Um, So they had these magnificent Tudor portraits of all of Henry VIII's wives. So I got to see that. And then I saw the actual death warrant for Charles I, and you could pick out Oliver Cromwell's signature. So I was like, gosh, this is amazing. The portraits, the death warrant, it can't get much better than this. And then we went into this other room, and I actually saw Queen Victoria's throne. I just thought, my gosh, (laughs) this is perfection. All these things for me to be able to enjoy. It's such a magnificent building inside, and there was gold, and there was riches everywhere. And I felt very honored to get the invitation to go and to go and have dinner there. But when I reflected on it, I asked myself, what was it really that I was so excited about? The history was great, but I was also quite excited that I might meet somebody famous. And I was also quite excited about the fact that just being there made me feel really important. It's one part of the building where if you're a lord, you can go there and you can write letters And they have this writing paper, special like House of Lords writing paper that has the little insignia on it. And you can put it in a special House of Lords envelope. So it's a bit cheeky, but I said to the guy who was taking us around, can I have some of the paper, please? So he gave me like one precious little sheet of House of Lords paper with a little insignia on there. And I was reflecting again, you know, why is it that I'm so excited about this? Well, I guess because... If I wrote a letter to somebody on this, I think that they'd think that I was really important. And it made me feel good about myself. It made me feel as though if I wrote a letter on this, I had really achieved something. In another part of the Lords, there's this room, this this bit of area which has got blue carpet. The whole rest of it is red. And the guy that was taking us around said that as soon as you step onto the blue... If you're a visitor, you're not allowed to talk. The only people that can talk in this special bit were the lords. I thought, that's a bit strange. But the whole point is to just show hierarchy that they are important and that we plebs are not really that important. (laughs) Um, So I wasn't important enough to speak on the blue carpet. But God says in verse 20, Let all the earth be silent before me. Not even the lords with all their status will be able to talk when they meet with God. And in reality, whatever humans have constructed for ourselves can be grand and can be magnificent and can be enjoyable, like Wednesday evening was for me. But it doesn't compare to knowing God and being in his presence. God says here at the end of Habakkuk, I'm not interested in your idols in the things that you collect for yourself to make yourself feel important. I'm interested in you meeting me 
and being silent before me. So the question is, are we prepared to get rid of those human-created things that make us feel important? Because I really believe that these are sometimes the things that get in the way of us meeting with God. I really believe that in that silent place of awe, when we meet God, he invites us into a relationship through his son, Jesus. Let's not lie. God doesn't like our sin. We saw that there. He doesn't like my sin. He doesn't like your sin. That was really clear in the reading. But in that silent place of his presence, God shows us a way out. By sending Jesus, God says, this is not the way that you need to live. All these things that you might directly or indirectly have been involved in, the arrogance, the greed, the extortion, the murder, the violence, the corruption, the drunkenness, the idol worship. You don't have to carry the shame for all of those things. At the cross, Jesus says, I take it all. Every last bit of guilt and of pain, I take it so that you can start again. And for those of us that are Christians, going to meet God in that holy place and continually acknowledging that we are saved through Jesus is such a crucial part of our faith. And for those of us here who might not be Christians, that's the offer In that final verse, God calls you to meet with him in his holy temple to deal with those things that maybe you feel bad about. God challenges us at the end of the passage by saying, can all these things that you've created for yourself speak into your life? And he says, no, they're lifeless inside. He says, come and meet with me and I will show you true life. Amen.